Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son, Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today, you are not only in for a treat, but if I'm being honest with you on the front side, you are in for an extraordinarily deep, emotional, painful, tragic, and if you hang on for it, redemptive conversation about a very sensitive topic, topics including mental health, bullying, cyberbullying, suicide, loss, and ultimately healing, living mission, and making a mighty difference in the years that we still have. While we'll speak delicately and appropriately about this topic, I do acknowledge on the front side of the conversation that it may be difficult for some of our listeners in particular, some of our younger listeners, grade school, middle school, high school age students, I'm speaking to you for you to hear. But maybe because it's difficult to hear, it might even be more important for these young people to hear. The reason this conversation matters to them, and I think to all of us today, is because more than one in five students will be bullied this year. Chances are that this is happening to someone in your family or someone you care deeply about. With October being National Bullying Prevention Month, and with our young people under more stress, dealing with more anxiety, handling more complexity than any previous generation, today's guest is a reminder that everyone's actions matter and that we have a role to play in bullying prevention. Tina Meyer is today's guest. Her life changed permanently and tragically on October 16, 2006, when her 13-year-old daughter, Megan, took her own life following a cruel cyberbullying hoax. She'll share the stunning story of what led to her daughter's suicide, as well as the even more stunning person behind the bullying. It's a shocking story. Unable to bring her daughter back, Tina began an organization to support and inspire action to end bullying, cyberbullying, and suicide called the Megan Meyer Foundation. By empowering our society to celebrate individuality and acceptance of others, for us to stand up to the bully, to love others well, Tina believes that we can work together to make a mighty difference and to create ultimately a safer, kinder, more loving world. Today, Tina shares how she took her grief and vengeance and ultimately transformed it into healing and purpose. It's a mission-led conversation you're ultimately going to hear today. 
I'm so grateful that you are part of it. I encourage you to open wide your hearts, your Live Inspired journals. Get ready to take some notes. You'll need it today as I introduce you to my friend, and she's about to be yours. Her name is Tina Meyer. Tina, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. This is an honor to have you on our show today. Globally, I guess we could be considered neighbors because we live generally in the same marketplace. So if you and I bumped into each other at a local grocery store and it was not a podcast, it was just a random interaction. And I said, Tim, Tina, tell me about you. How would you respond to that question? I, sometimes people might think it's a little bit sad, you know, because they're like, they want to hear when people have gone through tragedies, they want to hear that you have found this new, you know, where you love to maybe water ski or you love to go out and golf now, or you love to go sightsee. Well, yes, I would, I love to travel. Um, really for me, it's the downtime. That's like the precious time for me. I think when you talk about topics that can be hard and, and pretty emotional for a lot of people, it's that stepping back into your safe place and throwing on comfortable clothes and watching TV or organizing a closet as boring as that sounds or going and spending time with my other daughter, Allison, to, you know, just laugh or have yeah. fun. It's, it's those things to me that are the most precious times that I, you know, are sacred to me. But other than that, I'm just, I love the foundation and what we do. Where I bumped into you originally was on a TED Talk. You know, I've heard enough stories that I'm easily moved, but generally I, I keep the tears at bay. There was just something in your normalcy and how ordinary your life was and then how radically and painfully it was upended that had me crying for the entire time you were speaking. So we're going to be talking about that talk. We're going to be talking about your life. We're going to be talking about your loss and ultimately what it means for our listeners during our conversation today. But before all of that, talk about your upbringing. Where'd you grow up and what was life like for you as a kid? I grew up in St. Charles, where I'm back. We sometimes <laughs> say we're going to move far away. And then we always end up like a couple of miles from where <laughs> we grew up. So for me, yes, I had a magical childhood until the age of nine. My mother and father adored each other. I had a younger brother. Our family was very tight knit family dinners at my grandparents' house. Then my father had a grandma seizure. Um, when I was nine years old, he came home, didn't feel good from work, fell in the kitchen, had a seizure, and they took him away um, by ambulance and diagnosed with a brain tumor that was kind of wrapped in a large cyst. So they said he had six months to live and he was 29 years old. My world, our family world, just kind of was crumbling at that point. My father did have surgery but it paralyzed the right side of his body and part of his speech. He went through chemo, pretty sick. And it was a lot back then. I mean, my dad was like my rock. He was like six foot two, this great loving man that would get down on his knees and tell me he loved me, baby girl, before going to bed. He was like this amazing man. And then to see him in that space of him trying to be brave, but knowing that he was in pain and scared was heartbreaking. Then, um, unfortunately, a couple of years later, my younger brother, Tony, went to 
School couldn't see the board. They took him to the eye doctor and they found out that he had a brain tumor. And so Tony's was not related to my dad's. Tony's was malignant. Tony was in children's hospital for about a year. My dad was back and forth between barns. And so those years for me, I lived with a lot of family and friends. And, you know, there's gaps in between my memory just because of the pain that we block. But Tony did finally was able to get out of the hospital. And um, out of somebody who went through so much as a kid, he was probably the happiest, most self-confident person I've ever met in my entire life. Tony never looked at life as why me or why him. People weren't nice. Tony was just like, it's okay, buddy. Come on, let's hang out. I mean, he was, he was amazing. So growing up in that, I don't feel pity for myself. I look back and I realize that I had, you know, we went through a lot, but there was always that love and support and family there. And even though my dad died when I was 15, he eventually did pass away. I look at how lucky I was because he was the most amazing father until the age of 15. Mm. And some people never get to experience that, you know, and my brother did eventually die when he was 36. Yes, it's been rough, but, you know, I made it through. It was rough and you did make it through and you did learn lessons that you would eventually apply again as you continue to progress through life. You meet a boy in second grade. You start Mm -hmm. dating, I think, in high school. Eventually, you you marry this young man. And a couple of years after your marriage to Ron, you welcome into the world a little baby girl named Megan. Talk about Mm -hmm. Megan. Megan was amazing. She was her own independent person from the time she was born. She was never, even though you could cuddle and love her, she just didn't sit still for very long. So Megan was just always on the move, big, huge dimples, brown, curly hair. Just, of course, I thought she was the most amazing child in the entire world. She made the family. And I can remember her giggles, her laughs, all of that. It was, she was a phenomenal kid, but she was on the go, always. On these interviews, I always do a little bit of recon. I did as much as I possibly could, of course, on you and Megan. Yeah. And part of my research led me to realize that Megan is extraordinarily loud and funny with a hilarious laugh. Talk about that laugh. Oh, you know what? If anybody was going to like disrupt calm or quietness, it was going to be Megan. On her good days, Megan was so amazingly funny, the huge, big sense of humor. Um, She found certain things funny and you could start laughing at her and she would laugh and then she would like gasp laughing. And then I would laugh even harder. So I had tears rolling down my face. She was just goofy. It didn't matter if it was a dance move. She loved scaring people, especially her family. So she loved Halloween and Chucky and all of that. And there was a time that she took this like life-size doll. It was a Barbie doll, an old ancient Barbie doll and dressed it in real clothes and then put it in her dad's truck in the front seat. And then when he went to work really early in the morning, he opened the door and it looked like there was a human in the car and he freaked out. And of course, Megan thought it was hysterical. So it was just her. She was, she was funny. Yeah. I missed that laugh. 
I heard she was also a guardian, a caretaker of people, in particular people who struggled. And uh, I read about a little boy who was blind, and yes. she was his. She was his friend. Oh yeah, Brett. I still remember him, um, Megan. I think because she struggled with self worth. And sometimes fitting into certain groups that she then was the, I mean, she would stand on that hill. If it was somebody else being made fun of that struggled even more um, or had a disability, Megan would stand on that hill, defend them, even if she got in trouble, did not matter. What was right was right. And what was wrong was wrong with her. And she had a really good relationship with Brett. Yeah, that's one of the things her kind, big heart was what could get her in trouble sometimes um, in schools. But it was one of those things that I am so grateful that she had. You mentioned that when she was good, and then you went on and talked about all these other things. And even the way you frame that means, well, that also means there were there were seasons where she wasn't when she struggled. To talk about those seasons, what, what age was she when she began to struggle with depression? I didn't know it was depression. I just thought it was that Megan was, she had friends, but, you know, she would get made fun of because of her body or her size. And she took everything to heart, no matter what I would say of, honey, don't worry about them. You're perfect the way you are. Megan took every negative thing and she compared herself to the other girls. So their size, the way they looked, the attention that they got, it, it was the popular group that she wanted to fit into. And I thought maybe she was just struggling with friends and it was third grade and she, I could not get her to sleep that night. She was crying and she said she wanted to kill herself. Mm. And for a third grader saying that I was not prepared as a mom, never thought I'd hear those words. And I panicked. I ran into my bedroom. I grabbed a pillow, went into my bathroom and sobbed thinking, who do you call? Like, what do you do for this? Do I call 911? Her doctor? I didn't know what to do. And I went back into her room and said, Megan, talk to me. Why would you feel this way? And she said, everybody hates me. I hate myself. And I was like, Meg, do you even know what this means? Because I thought, Tina, she cannot know what this means. She had to have overheard this. She knew exactly what it meant. And I was petrified. I slept with her that night, took her to the doctors the next day. He referred us to um, psychiatrists and psychologists, and it took months to get in. And she was finally diagnosed with depression and ADHD. And I still thought, depression, my third grade kid? No way. Like, how? How is that? I mean, I could make her happy. There's things that I can do. I'm going to do whatever I can do to make her happy. And I quickly realized that 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 was not the answer. I could take her to Six Flags with friends and she would really struggle comparing herself to what the other girls looked like. And so we did start medication. We did start therapy to really try to help her and feel good about who she was. So not only was she not feeling great about the way she looked in the mirror, the way she perceived herself, but I understand that several of the classmates in the school would mock her and make noises and and call her derogatory terms. Eventually, near the end of school, you shift schools. You leave one school and you you, you go to another. What, What did you find at the new school? The hope at the new school was just a change for Megan, like just a positive change, because... It, there wasn't anything this other school was going to be able to do to make the other kids stop. And we know that when bullying happens, they can do the small little tiny things that to you, when they're consistently doing it, feels like 
the whole world sees it. It was really just to give her a fresh start, thinking maybe if she, you know, has a smaller grade and can start in the volleyball team with the new kids and making new friends, maybe she'll have that fresh start that she so desperately needed. And it was doing, she was doing well. I mean, she was really doing great. Megan was finally smiling and laughing, but not just in small periods. Um, she was looking at herself differently. It wasn't so negative. It was more positive and looking forward to things. And as a parent, it was finally like, this is what she needed. I mean, taking a deep breath of like, finally to see her happy. I was so grateful. Mm. This is 2006. Yes. On the horizon, and this is not only on the horizon of that year, but it's just now everywhere in our lives, social media. Right. Megan's a young girl. She wants to get involved with all of her friends. She wants to join what was then MySpace. You know, everybody right. wanted to be on MySpace back then. You right. were hesitant at first. Why? Um, I think I watched too many 2020s on How to Catch a Predator. <laughs> you know, so I was always worried about sexual predators, strangers. So I was really a big one of stay with me in the store. Don't leave my side. You know, there are strangers talking to them openly and honestly about different things that you don't give your name to anybody who drives up to the, you know, up the street. Yeah. So I was cyberbullying, not a word that I ever thought about. It was sexual predators. And, you know, and I also knew that Megan, even though she was doing much better, that she was also such a caring person that I did not want anybody else to take advantage of that kindness and, you know, say, oh, come to the mall, come here. And, and that's what I was really worried about. So you agree eventually for the MySpace account with some restrictions in place. You, you agree to okay. these things. Talk, talk about the things you agree to. So after she begged me about every 20 minutes for about two days <laughs> solid um, for the reasons why, I finally said, I will let you have the MySpace. And the reason was, is you have to balance this as a parent, right? Of how to protect them, but then also how to give them some privacy, some respect in a way so that they can start making their decisions and, and then knowing how to challenge those decisions, if they're good decisions or not. And so for Megan, I wanted her to feel like a normal everyday kid, but I said, okay, I've got the password. So I was the only one that had the password. Megan did not have the password to her account, which meant I had to sign her on. Um, back then it was dial up, so she couldn't get on it anywhere. I had to prove anything that went on her page. So songs, images, her profile had to be kept private. Her computers, they always had to be in open spaces. And I even purchased a program. Um, I think it was from 2020 or something like that, which was called WatchRite, which you would get a disc that actually came in the mail and you'd put it into your computer and it would track the history of any website that you went to. And then also AOL instant messaging because it was MySpace and AIM. Those were the two things that they were on. And I told her about all of it and she shook her head, gave me the typical teen hand of like, seriously, you are a warden of a prison is what yeah. she told me. <laughs> But like, when I, I know. You go through all that, you're doing so much more than probably any of our listeners are doing with their kids right now, as we give them supercomputers that they can have in their purse and in their, in their pockets. Right. 
with very little restrictions. And even the restrictions many of us parents set up, many of our kids know just how to work right around them. Right. I want to spend part of our conversation, of course, talking about, so what can we do? What can we do? But this is the life you're living right now in 06. Life is normal and it is good. Right. And I'd like you to take it forward from there. Sure. So Megan had two volleyball games that morning. She filled out the first set of her birthday invitations, but they weren't quite right. So it was, mom, we need to go get more. So we went up to the store, got her more invitations and She was filling out the invitations, but she asked, it was a Sunday night, if she could sign on to MySpace. And so I said, yes, I will sign her on. And she got a message that popped up and it was from Josh Evans, this boy who said, who I had let her befriend um, about five to six weeks earlier. And this boy said, you're not a nice person. Nobody wants to be friends with you anymore. And Megan responded back of, yes, I am. You know, what are you talking about? Where'd you get this from? But there was no response from Josh. And, you know, she even told me about it because I was in the basement with her. It was where my office was at. And, and she said, you know, what do you think about it, mom? I said, honey, people have bad days. Just, you know, just ask them what they're talking about. So she was talking to her other friends, filling out the invitations And she even sent another message at the end and said, what are you talking about to Josh Evans? But still no response. And it was late and she signed off. The next day, October 16th, I take her to school. She's in a fantastic mood, excited. I even took her to the gas station before we got to school. One of her things was she would get a Hershey candy bar and she would share it with or give one to somebody who was having a bad day. And then she would kind of break apart another one and share it. And one of her girlfriends was upset over a boy, the typical middle school thing. And so we did that that morning. I picked her up from school that afternoon. It was pouring down rain. She was in this great mood, laughing and giggling. And everybody was going to come to the party. And it was going to be great. And we get home. And the moment we walked through the door instantly, Now she wanted me to sign her on. She wanted to see what did Josh say? So I said, Meg, I will sign you off on, but we have a few minutes. Your sister's going to be getting off the bus. I had to take her to the orthodontist. The messages um, came in late the night before from Josh to Megan and said, you heard me. Nobody likes you. No one wants to be friends with you. And Megan said, I am nice unless somebody is mean to me. Like, where are you getting this from? And they started going back and forth and I heard the bus come down the street. And like I said, it was pouring rain. And I said, Meg, you've got to sign off. I've got to leave. Mm -hmm. Typically I never did that, but I was in a rush. Megan said, mom, please let me finish this last message. And I will. I left, got in the car, got my other daughter. And as we got to the orthodontist office, I called her and She was crying and I said, Meg, what is going on? And she said, they're saying horrible things. I said, who? And she said, on MySpace, I said, Megan, I told you to sign off, sign off. I will be home. Another half an hour or so later, I called to check on her. I was getting ready to leave and she was sobbing where I couldn't even understand her. And I said, Meg, are you still on MySpace? And she said, yes. I said, Megan, get off the MySpace. I will be home. Driving home, 
as a parent, I was tired. I was frustrated. I'd been running all day. Yes. My other daughter, Allison's in the back crying, who's 10 and a half because her braces got tightened. Her mouth hurts. Megan's at home crying. There's homework, dinner, baths. I get home and Allison ran across the street to a friend's where I dropped her off in front and I go in the house and Megan is still crying at the computer. And I said, get up, let me see what's going on. And I started looking at messages that went from Josh to Megan, Megan to Josh. Josh now got two other kids involved. And the messages that went back and forth were just mean and cruel messages. And back then they used your first and last name. They did not care back then. And it was Megan Meyer is a fat blank. Megan Meyer is a this. Um, and now I saw Megan defending herself saying, I'm not this, you're this. And I said, Megan, come on. I told you, listen, if you would have signed off when I told you to, we could have handled it differently, but now it's the war of words. No one wins. And I've told you about responding back to them and saying these things. I said, Meg, you're none of these things that they're calling you. And she said, who's going to believe me, mom? They're going to believe everybody in my old school, everybody in my new school. They're going to believe them. And she said, you're supposed to be my mom. You're supposed to be on my side. And she took off running upstairs. And I was still trying to gather what was happening. And I heard her dad come down the stairs. We were in the kitchen then talking about he didn't like the fact that she had a MySpace or took photos or did any of those things. And we were arguing a little bit about, you know, she doesn't need that stuff and she just gets upset. And it was probably 20 minutes went by. And then I just had a horrible feeling. Um, I stopped mid sentence, ran upstairs in her room and opened the door and found her hanging in her closet. I screamed to her dad to, call 911 to get a knife. Um, he ran upstairs and got her down. I was trying to call 911. Um, but my daughter, younger daughter had called home at the exact same time. I was trying, trying to dial out, shared me frantically screaming, get off the phone, get off the phone. I've got a call. And I, I could not get a dial tone. So I had to run around trying to find my cell phone. I finally found that and called 911. And unfortunately, my 10 and a half year old came home because she heard me frantic and saw her dad trying to give Megan CPR. Um, I screamed to her to run down the street to our best friend's house to get the neighborhood. Um, he was like Megan's their brother, but right. he was, had just taken CPR classes and was a lifeguard. And they came up. He helped Ronnie took over and the paramedics finally arrived. Megan was transported to a hospital and then later um, transported down to children's hospital. She lived for about 24 hours, but she was never conscious. And eventually her blood pressure, nothing they were doing was working. And it was to the point of, are we going to do life support? I, I could not put her in that place. If there was a chance, I would have done whatever, but I did not want her living like that. And she died on October 17th of 2006. Hmm. Yeah. I'm so sorry. You know, well, the, the, you. the whole story is just so tragic and painful yeah. and unsettling. 
And we'll come back to this friend named Josh Evans in a moment, but before we even get there, you leave the hospital. In 06, by the way, I served as a hospital chaplain down there. I could have been your chaplain that night as you guys walked in there. You leave and you go home and you you pass a bedroom where this all happened and you pass a closet where that all happened. And you've got a daughter who you're still trying to love and raise and keep safe and a husband who you're trying to figure out things with. And what do you, as a family, on day one of this journey forward, how do you even begin to breathe again? I think you go on autopilot. I think there is um, whatever your belief system is, whether it is you have a religious belief or not. For me, it was, I don't know how I walked out of that hospital. I don't know how you talk or or drive or do any of those things that you're supposed to do. It was just autopilot and you're in a fog. Everybody around you is really kind of guiding you. They're kind of telling you or putting you here and taking you over here. And are you okay? Do you need this? And putting food in front of you and, and doing all of it. And you're kind of sitting there and it's almost like just this fog is just like whipping around you but you are just sitting there. All I wanted to do was to be with Megan. Mm-hmm. Even the love for Allison that I had, that I would give my life, I equally loved my children the same. But it was so much grief and so much pain that I just, all I wanted to do was hold Megan again, tell her it was okay. I wanted to know, did she know how much she was loved? Mm-hmm. You know, those are always those things. You know, you always want to know. Did I do enough? Yeah. You know, why? Um, all those questions. And unfortunately, there's never an answer, you know, to that. You have to kind of get to that point to know that you loved them or did everything you could possibly do. But it's hard. You just brought up, I, w- I wondered if Megan knew how much she was loved. And my understanding is she may or may not have, but you certainly did because the funeral was overwhelmingly loving and passionate and people telling you the impact that she had made on their lives. What do you remember from, from the service or from the time around the funeral? I think when you go through these things, I'm sure maybe you do too, where you have these blocks in time, you know, Mm -hmm. where you can remember certain pieces through uh, some of the tragedies that we go through. And I don't remember much about the actual funeral itself, I remember walking in behind the casket, the wake. I do remember, you know, it was just a constant line. And, um, you know, there were a lot of kids there that would come up and put notes or put things in the casket. And there's only a few faces that I can remember. A lot of the faces, they're just like, there's no faces. There's just people coming by and, It's not that you don't care, but you're just in a place of trying to keep going, keep breathing so that you can let them show their respects, but also trying to respect them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do remember at the very end, it was one of Megan's friends from her old school. Her name was Olivia, and she brought this big stuffed animal and it was just the way she looked at me with her eyes and she just sobbed and sobbed and I remember her at the end is when I finally cried 
but it, you know, it was beautiful. There was so many people that did come and, you know, I do know in my heart that Megan knew now I do this many years later. I know that Megan knew how much we loved her, how much we told her that we loved her. I just, you know, it's always those things that we, if we could go back, what would we do differently? Right. And I don't know if I could tell her I loved her any more differently. You know, I just don't. It was constantly, I probably drove her nuts with that. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you, mom. So uh, (laughs) I told her, she heard it and uh, she felt it. And uh, that certainly is always going to be part of that story. You mentioned in line, you you vaguely remember faces, but they're murky and they're blurry. And you vaguely remember names, but it's kind of murky and blurry. Well, there's a name that's going to become part of the story, unfortunately, forever going forward, the name Josh Evans. You, oh, yeah. you whispered his name a moment ago. Now you've lost your daughter shortly before her first 14th birthday. She's died by suicide. And then you hear about this boy. He's the one that they became friends online. And the story's going to take a radical turn. Would you right. talk about what you learned about Josh Evans? After all this happened with Megan, I went back online to try to, I was worried about the kid. You know, I thought if this kid knew that she took her own life, I was worried that did like, what was going on? Like what happened? And I certainly didn't want another kid to feel or struggle with that. So I tried searching, but the Josh Evans account was deleted. It was gone. And then I tried searching just Josh Evans. I tried searching anything, anybody's name, any mutual friends that they had. I tried searching that. I could find nothing. And I would sometimes sit up until two, three, four in the morning, driving myself insane, searching, Google searching on MySpace for any images, anything that I could think of to find out like, because now I'm thinking was, was it a kid that got scared? Was it an adult playing a joke? Like, I didn't know what was going on. Now it's Thanksgiving weekend and I I didn't know how am I supposed to be thankful right now because I'm sorry I'm just not thankful for anything and I had decided I needed to go to I needed to go for grief support and I needed to go for grief support specifically for parents who lost their children to suicide because you know I, I knew very early on that my child did ultimately make that choice and to go to another support group for parents who lost their children to a illness or a tragedy, their children didn't ask for it. And how do you, you know, grief, the sadness is the same, but I knew that I needed to go somewhere that understood this. I had been to one and then we were planning on going to a second one. And I'd finally talked my husband at the time into going. And then I get a call. And it was a call from a woman down the street that said, my name, I I knew who she was, but said, I have information about Megan's death and I would like you and your husband, Ron, to come to this meeting. It's at a counselor's office in the area. And so I can explain this to you. And I was really kind of confused and almost frustrated. I was like, you know, I'm going to this grief support group because it's like all I'm doing to hold on right now. And I'm sorry, but I I can't make it. And I hung the phone up and I thought, what, why do you want to talk to me about my kid's death? Like, I don't want to hear what your thoughts are or what, no, I'm not going to go sit and do that. I get another call 
And now it's a call from a grief support therapist that we village in our subdivision. And he said, listen, I know you just got a call. It's really, really important that you go to this meeting. I will be there. Um, but you need to be there and see if there's any other supports, family supports that you can have available. I'm like, fine, whatever. <laughs> I wasn't happy. I walked into this, the office and there was, it's the typical counseling group session, right? Where everybody's sitting in the circle. And I walked in and I saw the mom who called the grief support counselor. I saw a counselor from Megan's old school my husband and I at the time, and then his mom came and then there was another therapist there. And I walked in and I said, so you're going to tell me Josh Evans is fake, right? Is that what you're going to tell me? Wow. And the mother shook her head and said, yes. And said that she was neighbors with the mom, Lori Drew too, said that she knew that Lori Drew, a mom who was 47 years old at the time, and her daughter, Sarah, who had been friends with Megan since fourth grade, and another 18-year-old girl that would was kind of family friend, they created the, the fake Josh Evans account the whole entire time. The reason was, is they heard that Megan called her daughter a lesbian. Megan and Sarah had been friends since fourth grade. Megan moved to a different school. Megan was not perfect, for absolutely, but... If Megan did call a name and I would have known about it, I would have talked to Megan about, you know how hurtful names are, right? Well, they created the account to be able to find out if Megan was talking about her daughter. So for the whole entire period of time, Megan never said a word about her. Hmm. It turned into a joke. And the reason that the, the mom across the street knew about this was because her daughter also went to soccer practice with Lori Drew and that daughter, and they would joke about it as they would go to Catholic religion classes. And as they would go to soccer practice, Lori Drew and the daughter would joke and laugh about it, about how they were going to trick Megan and make her look like a fool. The night that Megan took her own life and the ambulance came, Lori Drew, our neighbor, acting as Josh Evans, called across the street to the neighbor's house and asked to speak to the daughter, the 14-year-old girl, and told her to keep her mouth shut about the MySpace account. And that's when they deleted it. So this entire time, these were the same people that came to Megan's wake and funeral, same people that asked us to store a foosball table in our garage for their kids for Christmas, that begged us to come to their daughter's 14th birthday, which we did because we thought we were doing the right thing. And the whole time we're just relishing in the fact of watching us in our pain. Mm. Yeah. Tina, it's just, it's impossibly hard to hear all this. And I've yeah. heard it and read it and I'm ready for this. You're walking in mourning your baby girl who's never gonna come home. And you walk into this circle and you hear this. What do you do with that? They were all worried about my husband at the time's rage. I don't know if he knew how to even speak or function with what was going on. It was my rage that was probably the worst. I left there and I thought, I called, we called my aunt. We called, by that time it had started spreading and a lot of our family and friends were there. And again, I was the real estate agent. I sold 
them their house four houses down the street right i was going to go straight to their house and i was going to literally pull them apart with my hands i did not want them to live anymore i did not want them to be able to know what it was like to wake up and raise your child i wanted them to know what it was like to watch your child take their last breath and not be able to do a damn thing about it. That's what I wanted at that time. That's all I could do is you're going to pay for what you did to my kid. It was rage. It was vengeance with this deep sadness with Megan thinking, my God, you had no clue that this was a joke. Like if you would have known it was a joke, Meg, you would have, you would have been here, right? We were blocked, fortunately, by neighbors. They blocked the street. So when we came in, they blocked the street so that we could not go down the street. And then we got out of the car and I started running down the street and they grabbed me and physically started holding us back. Everybody was surrounding us and everybody is hysterical and screaming and crying. And my family is screaming and crying. Well, I'm curious because in all that I've heard and read, I've never heard that there was ever an apology because we can talk a little bit about the court and everything else that you go through, but I've never heard that there was actually a sincere, gosh, we're so sorry. No, because they didn't believe that they really did this, that it was all their fault. They wrote a letter, handwritten letter. So one pager, I still have the letter where Lori Drew says, I know that you blame us for Megan's death, but we want to be able to share our side of the story to be able to tell you if there's a time, here's our number, please let me know. You had six weeks when this other neighbor that came forward and finally did this would call and beg you, met with you, met with the police department, met with anybody that you can think of to try to get you to come forward. And you chose not to. And my thought at that point in time was, I have nothing to say to you. Because if you did not find during any of that time, a day where you said, you know, what we did was wrong, and have any remorse then to sit down with you now, no, I do not want to hear a word you have to say. And so, yeah, I didn't talk to him. Tina, we, we could spend two and a half podcasts talking about the legal battle. And instead, oh, yeah. um, we'll succinctly say that it you eventually find yourself in California. And, and what was the outcome of the case in, in Los Angeles? The grand jury did indict her on four federal charges. She faced 20 years in prison. The jury eventually found her guilty of three of them, and they were deadlocked in the fourth. So they were misdemeanors, though. Then the judge eventually at sentencing in 2009 essentially stated that it was unconstitutional to convict her. He would have to convict anybody else who lied on social media. And, you know, again, it's your First Amendment right, that freedom of expression and speech and you know, it was really at that point, I knew in the courtroom that he was not going to sentence her. It was from that point that I had to decide because it went from justice, vengeance to justice. And then from the justice part in that courtroom, I made the decision. I am going to focus a thousand percent on this foundation because she was not worth my time anymore. She was not 
what Megan's life was about. And all of these kids and families that are struggling, they matter so much more than me trying to push it any further because she's useless to me. She does not matter to me. And that's when I switched it. And, you know, they thankfully they moved to a different state. Um, they did move out of the area, which I am grateful for. I do not, I still to this day do not want to see their faces, but that's when the foundation really pushed forward and it was now we're going to really make this go. So from vengeance to mission. Yeah. So from trying to get even, if you will, to trying to make a difference in the marketplace that you recognize many, many, many others are struggling with this as well. And many more as technology becomes more commonplace, we'll struggle with it going forward. Talk, Talk about the mission that you began. So our mission is to support and inspire actions to end bullying, cyberbullying, and suicide. It's really been the same since day one of we want to help kids who have been bullied and provide them some supports and resources. The same with cyberbullying and ultimately we do not want any more suicides. And so our hope always is, is through our programs and the awareness and education that we can get kids to realize their life matters, the things that they're going through matter. And if they are being bullied or cyberbullied, it's not okay. It's not just a rite of passage. It's not just, you know, suck it up. That's what really, that's what really gives, builds you up and makes you tough. It's been evolving through the years. Um, The presentations really in the beginning were me crying, (laughs) trying to figure out how to be able to connect. And then I started realizing that a lot of times in nonprofits or when you start this foundation because of a tragedy with somebody that you loved and you're the founder and executive director, there's that piece of always trying to keep them alive, right? And very quickly, I didn't want people thinking that I was trying to keep Megan's life alive, that it started with Megan. And from that, if I can share her story and experience to connect with others, that it's all of these other kids' lives that matter. You know, this is what the foundation is about, about helping them moving forward so they can grow up to be adults in this world. And that's where we really push for it. I'm curious, what is the message to kids? I I think there's three different groups you're targeting. And the biggest group and the one I'm passionate about, of course, is first, our kids. So what's the message to children these days? I am very open and transparent with them. The ones on presentations with bullying and cyberbullying suicide are sixth grade and up. They're not sugarcoated. They are open and transparent. And we talk about what bullying actually is. It's not somebody saying something mean one time. It's not somebody excluding you from a group one time or moving your backpack one time. It is repeated. And we talk about how they direct it towards you. And it's this imbalance of power. I talk to them about what that imbalance of power is and what it looks like. But then we talk about what are some responses that kids that are typically having those bullying behaviors, they do not pick on anybody that they feel has the power at their level, right? They always pick on somebody who is just below them so that they can control. And they've done their homework to be able to monitor and watch the way that you react to things so that they know that if you're the kid that 
struggles with your you know self-esteem they know what to do and they know what to say if it's about sports they know what to do they know what to say so they watch and they pay attention to all of this when you do the same consistent things over and over again they get your reaction they get you to react to yell to get mad to cuss to whatever it's going to be but now you've given them what they want so we talk a lot about what that looks like we talk about why do we pick on other people for many different things from their race to religion to size to mental illness to physical disability to their family which is a huge piece of why kids get picked on and bullied about their families and you know then we talk about cyberbullying what that breaks down to be where somebody uses those electronics to repeatedly send messages repeatedly send harmful things to you and that even one hurtful message, it's not considered cyberbullying, but it's still hurtful. Your feelings are valid. And so then we talk about what are different ways to be able to report it. And we also talk about the fact that sometimes even when you report it, it doesn't go any further, right? And it feels like nobody cares. And so being open and honest with them about that, that that is the hard part. That's where you guys kind of, you know, kids kind of get to the point of like, see adults don't listen. They don't care. They don't understand what we're going through. I talk to them about their feelings and that their feelings do matter and how to be able to talk to an adult about when they are struggling because adults want to fix it right now instead of telling them calmly, can you please just hear how I'm feeling? Like what, what I'm going through. And if they have a hard time doing that, write it down. We work with groups at the end of the day to really think about what can be done in their school that's realistic, that's from kids for kids to try to make a difference. So it's it's amazing. Kids are amazing. I mean, when you talk to them, they are bright and caring and good. And if we give them a chance. You have these lines that form after you're done speaking and these little yeah. ones, sixth, seventh, eighth, and sometimes older kids come up to you and, and share things. They hug you. They're honest with you. Constant conversations is going to be hard for you to come up with one answer, but has there been one that just deeply moved you, a, a child who came up and shared something with you? I could probably write a book with all the memories of just what these kids have shared. Most of it I will get is kids coming up and saying, I felt like you were telling my story and I've gone through what Megan's gone through, or I am cutting, or I've attempted and I really struggle or my mom's really sick and I don't want to put more pressure on her. So I just don't want her worrying about that stuff. You know, you try, but there's ones where their face and the things that they say to you just absolutely are ingrained inside of you. And I'll never forget the things that they tell me. The hope always is, is to hug them and tell them that they matter. Their voice matters. And trying to make sure that if they do need help to get them to a counselor. A lot of times they'll tell me afterwards, no, I'm okay. No, I'm okay. I don't need to talk to somebody. Yeah. Okay. Will you please, can we just walk in there? Will you just maybe sit quietly in the counselor's office for just 10 minutes, take a deep breath. Can we do that? You know, so to get them to know it's okay is so important. And then it's, it's when you leave, you just think about them and hope that they get the supports that they need. Well, not all of them have guardians, parents, couples at home for them that are going to give them that security, that safety, that love that you gave Megan, in fact. 
many of our listeners are looking not only at the podcast dial, but they're looking on their back seat, seeing a little loved one seated right behind them, or they're thinking about the dinner conversation they're going to have tonight, or they're thinking about the last time they went off because the homework wasn't done. And they're like, oh my gosh, am I doing all of this wrong? Help us shift from thinking of the things we're doing wrong to how we can do a few things right to make sure our kids know that they're, they're safe with us and that we can be a place that they turn to when things get out of whack in their own lives, when things seem like they're not safe at school, that they can lean into us and they'll find safety there. Right. Well, first of all, to know there's not a perfect parent, that we are going to make mistakes. And even if we had that golden book in front of us and read it, we'll still make mistakes, right? When your child comes to you and is struggling, instead of us trying to automatically fix it or think that our words of, I went through it, who cares, it's gonna be fine. Instead of that, it is the most basic thing like what I did in the TED talk. It is listening, actively listening to your child, which means sitting down, looking at them, not on the phone, not watching sports, not cooking dinner, it's that few minutes of actually listening to what they're saying. Do not interrupt, let them talk. Once they've got done talking, then what you have to do is validate now, which means it is validating their feelings. You're not validating their behaviors or their actions. At that moment, it's just letting them know that I hear that you're sad or embarrassed or don't wanna go to school and I am, I can hear how hard that was. And I so grateful that you shared it with me. What can I do to help you? How can I help? Let's, what are some ideas? Because then what happens is your brain is kind of calmed down. Their brain is calm. They know that they've been heard instead of it being parents at each other's throat um, with kids of you don't care. Yes, I do. It's now a lot of times the kids will know that once they've been listened to, they don't always need us to fix it. They just need to know that we were here and heard them. A lot of times they will say, I, I think I can do it on my own, which is what we want them to start working on. And then following back up with them of, hey, we had that discussion. How are you? How are you feeling? Are there some things that you thought of? Can I help? Definitely do not. The second they walk in the door every single day, say, how was school with that? Was that kid nice to you? Is everything okay? Do you need something because they feel your anxiety and anxiousness, but it's open conversations with them. When you continually start having these throughout their life, they will know that you are that safe place to go to and you won't yell and scream. You will listen and validate and then work with them. It's the number one thing. I have a daughter at home. If I ask her how her day is, sometime <laughs> after uh, 10 o'clock, the answer will finally end, meaning this little girl will just roll and roll and roll. There are no periods in her sentences. It's just the word and. I know everything about Grace O'Leary. She has three older brothers, Jack, Patrick, and Henry. And it is like pulling teeth to have them actually share with dad, how was school? What's going on? What about relationships? What about the weekend? What do you guys want to do? And so for the ones who, uh, the children at home who want to talk, yeah, thank you for the great advice you just gave us. What about for the children who we are raising, who are less likely to be open and honest with us? So I think it's the, the small things that we do that matter. One, it's being there. I mean, just by a parent being there and the boring things that we think that we're doing is 
watching TV in the evenings or having dinner together, even if they don't talk, right? You're still there. But for those ones, I mean, there are little things that you can do of if it's going to a sporting event or even during practice, hey, what music are you listening to now? What's your favorite song? Let's let's throw it on. I'm I'm not going to complain about it, right? Let's let's just hear it. Let's let you live in it, right? Sometimes it's those things, but it can even be as cheesy as it sounds for a dad to do it. It can be, I know this isn't normal, but I just want you to know I love you. Put it on a post-it, put it in their room, right? Put it in a place where they can see it. And they may think, oh my God, are you kidding me? But underneath really, it's just knowing that you're there. And it's a lot of times the way that you interact with your family, your friends, that's where they take it. But you can never force them to talk ever. The final thing that I want to talk about before the Live Inspired 7 is a lot of the work that you do is instructive on how children can become allies to others. And had one of those kids, there were many involved in near the end of Megan's life. Many kids knew about this and no one stepped up and did the right thing. Right. And you remind the children that you speak to that one peer's voice, one child's voice in the classroom is worth 10 adult voices. It's a really a big deal when, when kids in the classroom on the bus advocate for others. A lot of our listeners are retirees or executives or racing through life as parents. Right. They also have a lot of kids that tune in. So as we get ready to wrap up this Live Inspired interview, speak to the kids and remind them not only of the power and the miracle of their lives, but also of the ability within those lives to influence positively others. It is amazing that kids can stop bullying in 10 seconds compared to us as adults. The hard thing to get kids to be upstanders, right, to always stand up for what they see is wrong, is that they're so worried about being kind of put into that pit and now targeted. We talk to kids that there's many different ways that they can stand up, right? It doesn't have to mean running into the situation and saying, stop that, don't do that, that's not nice. Really, the things that they can do that are much better are if it's in their friend group and their friend group is the one that kind of always kind of picks on this one kid to just say, come on, knock it off, stop it, you're not funny right? Yeah. Or when it's quiet, if they're walking down the hall, purposely walk by that kid and just say, hey, listen, I'm sorry for what my friend just did. That's not okay. Are you okay? It's just these little tiny words that the kid knows that all adults are supposed to care, right? And they're supposed to do that. But when another peer does it, they don't have to. So for them, it's like they're finally being seen. We talk about holding the door open for somebody that you normally wouldn't. It is sitting next to somebody at lunch. Maybe you normally wouldn't. It's picking them on a team. It's putting a post-it note on their locker. Hey, you're amazing. You know their name. It's, it can be these little tiny things. Those are the things that really make a difference versus the big overt acts of like, you know, stop it, stop it. Because then teachers get noticed or jump in, and then all of a sudden the kid doesn't get the peer support that they want. And if it's online, send a private message that just says, hey, listen, I'm sorry. You know, I know, I don't know everything that's going on. I just saw this, but it's not okay what you're going through. And I, I really am sorry. Those things matter. Well, your work matters. What's the website where we can learn more about it? Sure. It is meganmeyerfoundation.org. 
So it's M-E-G-A-N-M-E-I-E-R foundation.org. And of course, as always, we will have a link to it on our show notes. You can learn more about it there. I strongly encourage you, students, teachers, and parents alike, check it out. There's so much to learn, so many beautiful free resources available there. We wrap up every single podcast with seven questions. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. Okay. I believe you are living inspired. So I'm going to ask these seven questions of you. I think you, okay. uh, you're you up for the task of answering them. Question number one okay. is what's been the most emotional, inspirational, or impactful book you've ever read? I'm going to have to say I don't read books. I know that's horrible. I have ADHD. So for me, I read bits and pieces of books. There have been some movie lovers more or TV lovers more than book lovers on the show. So let me ask you differently from a podcast, radio or television perspective, what's been the most inspirational program that you've tuned into? You know, I love listening to Brene Brown, watching your story and it's not to be cliche or anything. It's truly, it's real stories from real people that are real, that are not doing it for the glory that are doing it because they really care and they put themselves out there just to try to help another person. Those are the stories that matter to me. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little girl growing up outside of St. Louis County that you wish you exhibited even more brilliantly today? Before everything happened with my dad, it was probably how innocent the world was. There was no cares. There was, it was just kind of living. And I just didn't, I just had that open, no judgments about things where you could just like wake up in the day and it was always going to be bright and it was always going to be sunny and everything was going to always fall into place. Thank you. Yeah. If, if your home caught fire, I know you're not a big material person, but here we go. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of going in and grabbing one item. What's the one thing you come racing back outside with? Megan made me, um, when she was in elementary school, this little bunny rabbit that I still have out and still has her name carved in the bottom of it when they put it into the little heat and it, you know, I would, I would grab that because those are things that are irreplaceable, right? I I wouldn't care if it was a diamond ring. I I want like that little (laughs) bunny that she made. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Oh, Megan. Well, absolutely. A thousand times over, it'd be her. I'd want to know, are you proud of me? I wanted to make sure that she knew how much I loved her, how much her life has made an impact in this world, that it's through her story that is, is helping save other lives and helping parents. And I wanted to know how proud of her I am and how grateful and lucky I was to have had her as a daughter because I get to share with the world. That's right. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Honestly, it is the listen and validate. That is probably the number one thing that has helped me as an adult, as a parent, as a friend, as a loved one, it is listening and validating instead of jumping in and fixing it. 
what would you tell your 20 year old self? Ooh, that you will be okay, that you will make it, that it's going to be bumpy. Your life matters. There's a purpose. And for that purpose, you're going to be able to help others through some of the things that you've gone through. Tina Meyer, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? She made a difference. Tina, I am convinced you have indeed made a mighty difference. And I think when you get an opportunity one day to sit on a bench with Megan, <laughs> she will tell you not only that she is proud of you, uh, but that you have lived well and that you've carried forward the torch of her life with incredible boldness. So I, I appreciate you. I'm sorry for the loss that you've endured, but I'm amazed by the life you are touching through it. Thank you so much. I do appreciate it. My friends, that is Tina Meyer. My name is John O'Leary, and today is our day. What a gift it is. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I, I recognize certainly that today's episode, while heavy, is an important conversation that needs to continue. I encourage you to remind the children in your lives that they are loved. Remind them that they do matter and remind them that they have the opportunity every day, peer to peer, to remind those they sit next to in class and play with at recess and sit next to at lunch to remind them that they are loved, that they matter, and that their best days are in front of them too, together. As Tina mentioned, we can make a mighty difference. And as you listen to the conversation, you also heard the opportunity of taking it one step farther and actively listening to people around you in life, whether they are your spouse, coworkers, friends, and certainly our young people, our children. Tina talked about the idea of not just listening passively with your phone on, distracted with the television or doing something else, but to look them in the eye, to pause, take a few moments and to focus only on them as if they are the most important person in the world. Because, let's not kid ourselves, they are. They matter. we got to remind them of that truth. If you enjoyed listening in to today's episode, there's several things you can do to continue the journey forward. Number one, tell your friends. Tell those you work with and worship with and work out with and hang out with on social media that you're listening in to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. And so should they. That's one way to expand and create an even larger ripple effect through the message today. So let people know that you're checking out the Live Inspired podcast and they might benefit from it as well. Secondly, of course, is to live this in your lives. Live it out loud through your lives. And third, if you enjoyed and benefited from learning the lessons from Tina Meyer, you also might enjoy learning more of the life and the challenges of my friend. Her name is Lizzie Valsquez. She was born with an extremely rare medical condition, and Lizzie was ridiculed for her outward appearance. Today, Lizzie has learned to embrace her difference, stand up to bullies, and inspire kindness, and she does this around the world. You can listen in to Lizzie's story in the Live Inspired podcast on episode 71, way back then, baby, episode 71 with Lizzie, or if you want an easier way to find it, just join me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcasts. And you can follow Lizzie then at episode 71. My friends, you matter. Your life is a miracle. The foundation is firm. The headwind is real. The challenges are fierce. 
but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until, until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift this day is. What a gift your life is. Live inspired. Akili Companies, they are all about the Keelian culture and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love. Just with a fresh, streamlined look, and new additions to the family. Who knows? Maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at keeleycompanies.com.